0: Well, everyone, I'm glad to be here. I have looked forward to uh, sharing some of these thoughts with you for a little while. And let's see. Um, Give me another minute, too, while I... Okay. So when I was last here, you remember I spoke about uh, Hezekiah. I talked about good King Hezekiah, and I really enjoy studying the life of Hezekiah. In fact, in the upper right there, you'll see his his seal, or bula, as archaeologists like to uh, term them. And uh, that was a lot of fun studying that, and I'm glad I got the opportunity to share that with you. One of the things that I didn't share with you, at least I don't believe I had time to get this far, but at the end of Hezekiah's life, the, the prophet Isaiah went to him and gave him a prophecy. And this is a very interesting prophecy. He said that some of his own descendants would end up being captives in Babylon, serving the king of Babylon as uh, eunuchs. As a side note, the term eunuch uh, does have some connotations, but it doesn't always denote specifically what you might be thinking. Um, it's really just a general term for uh, a court official or somebody working in the court or the palace and it depends on the dynasty and the, the culture uh, whether or not they're fully eunuchized. So, and anyway, um, Isaiah prophesied this to poor Hezekiah and Hezekiah consoled himself by saying, well, at least it's not going to happen in my time. So, and so much for Hezekiah. A few hundred or a hundred or so maybe years later, uh, the Babylonians defeated in 605 BC the Egyptians in a great battle at Carchemish. And that transformed the world. After defeating the Assyrians, the Egyptians were the world's superpower at the time, 605 BC. And the Babylonians came and blasted them, and they became the world's superpower. And shortly afterward, they came and visited Jerusalem. Guess what they did? They besieged it. And what happened is, as they are wont to do, they took some prisoners. This is Daniel chapter 1. And of course, I'll point out one of those prisoners was named Daniel. We have our three friends And Daniel, the leader of them, the four youths who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so in 605 BC, we've got four faithful, godly Jews stuck in Babylon. Well, or were they stuck? If you think about it, Babylon was the place to be. If you wanted to be in the hip-hop city, the world's superpower, it was like New York City. They didn't have a separate city where they just did the red tape and then a separate city where they did all the parties. Nope, it was all combined into one glorious city, the city of Babylon. Babylon the Great, an ancient, ancient city. Of course, you couldn't help but notice the wonderful temple of the god Marduk and... The ziggurat, as the uh, archaeologists like to call them, those stepped pyramids that we find all over the world, they call them as ziggurat, and so the most ancient of which was in the city of Babylon. In fact, as best we can tell, that was the original Tower of Babel. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at the time here that we're talking about, uh, actually did uh, significant repairs on it because it was uh, in quite disrepair being made out of... Uh, mud brick. So Babylon the Great. This is the the city where you have the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Just imagine what this was like. What was this like to these four youths? The hanging gardens of Babylon. Nowadays, modern archaeologists like to fight over whether or not it really was in Babylon because... Nowadays, modern archaeologists like to pull the rug out from under anything they possibly can. And so, some you'll find arguing that they were really the, the Hain Gardens of Nineveh. But we'll just assume that they were in Babylon for now. And uh, during Daniel's tenure there in Babylon, he lived there for quite a time, um, he saw some changes. The Ishtar Gate the Great Imposing Gate. Archaeologists have excavated this now, and it was in such good condition that they took all the bricks that Nebuchadnezzar had stacked on top of the original gate, and they took them to a museum in Pergamum, the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, Germany. You can go there today and see the original bricks. I think the paint might have been touched up. This is actually only the top half of the gate, uh, this is the portion that Nebuchadnezzar added. His father had built the previous uh gate, and so it was roughly twice this tall, actually, the completed gate uh, during Daniel's time, so he would have seen that construction. Looking out over the great city of Babylon, one could not help but notice this enormous tower reaching up to heaven by standards then. Up to heaven. The ancient name for this tower is E. And like I say, it's probably, as best we can tell, the original Tower of Babel. This tower was destroyed before the time of Jesus in uh, the 300s. Um, Alexander the Great, who fashioned himself as somewhat of a modern Babylonian ruler, he ordered it to be repaired. When he came back and saw that it was not repaired... Because by that time it was sagging badly, historian's report. And so Alexander the Great came back and saw that it wasn't repaired. And so he said, every brick, tear them down and put them in this holding place on the other side of the city. We're going to rebuild it from scratch. I think it was a month later he died. And so you can go today and you can see the foundations for this giant tower, e The foundations are uh down below the water level that's uh, actually how babylon was conquered but i digress babylon the great the site of the original rebellion after the fall we're going to make a tower for ourselves and make a name for ourselves said the people in rebellion against god because of the rebellion because of the history of the city of babylon Babylon became a symbol. It's more than just a city in scriptures. Babylon became a symbol, a metaphor in scriptures for outright, outright rebellion against God. For people saying, we are going to do things our way and not God's way. God said, scatter over the face of the earth. And the people said, let's make a name for ourselves and make a tower that reaches heaven. Lest we become scattered. And so Babylon stands in Scripture for pride, for rebellion, for arrogance, for persecution of God's people. It is shameless. It corrupts the innocent. It applauds debauchery. It mocks virtue. It's obsessed with power and cancels truth. And so that's where we find our three youths. And so we've got our three youths, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as Babylon is wont to do, it gave them new names. Oh fun, I get a new name. Let's examine what Babylon tried to do to them. Names, particularly Hebrew names, mean something. And so Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, got a new name. His new name was Belteshazzar which means may Bel protect his life. Bel is one of the Babylonian gods. They had a number of gods. And so Hananiah, whose name means God is gracious, he had his name changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Aku is their moon god. God is gracious was his daily reminder until he got renamed. And he had to hide that word in his heart. Because the command of Babylon is, you will call yourself by your new name, you will call each other by your new name, or you will not have a name. And so they complied. In fact, in the book of Daniel, Daniel himself refers to his friends by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, for some reason, in my mind, I remember those easier than their real true names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So Mishael, his name meant who is what God is. He was given a new name, Meshach. That means who is what Aku is, the moon god. Kind of got downgraded there, didn't he? Azariah's name means God helps. Well, his new name, Abednego, means servant of Nebo, Nego is apparently a form of uh, Nebo, which is another god. I think Nebo is the son of Bel. So Babylon corrupts. Babylon renames. Babylon tries to take over your culture. So I want to just think about it for a minute. What do you think it felt like being stuck in a new culture with what, what did you do? What? What? You have to call yourself by new names. Call each other by these new names. They got trained as court officials. What do you think it was like? How did they retain their own knowledge of the true God Most High? How did these guys survive? Well, I would propose to you, in 2023, it might not be all that different from surviving in any big city in Western civilization. I would propose to you that while Daniel and his three friends were captured and dragged off to Babylon and given new names, my proposal to you is that in the few years since that time, Babylon has expanded. Babylon has infiltrated. Babylon has grown. And Babylon has infiltrated our culture today. We are surrounded by a culture of decay, a culture that wants our children and our souls. And our modern civilization, truly we have architecture beyond that of the original Babylon, but it's really the same spirit. Maybe our entertainment is better than that of the original Babylon, But it's the same spirit. And that spirit has brought misery. We read, if you read in the right places, that some people believe that anxiety and depression are at an all-time high, even among Christians. Even among Christians. Christianity at large in Western culture, as it still survives. And we read that Young Christians don't want to get married. They don't want to raise a family. They're afraid to get married. They say, why would you want to get married in in this kind of culture? And What's going to happen? We're uncertain of the future. They don't want to raise kids. Even Christians, they'll say, we don't want to raise kids. Why would you want to bring a child into this world? Oh, no. Of course, that's contrary to the teaching of Scripture. But how do we... Escape this kind of a culture? How can we live and survive? How much less thrive? How can we thrive? Where can we turn? For guidance or direction? Where could we possibly turn? Right? Let's do that. In fact, let's turn to the book of Second Timothy. I took that photo from my Bible last night. There's not enough room. I'm going to have to, actually, I'll just use my, my that thing. So turn to the book of 2 Timothy. I believe that we have some observations. Now, I would normally at this time go into uh, the book of Daniel and follow some observations from Daniel's life and from his three friends' lives, but we don't have time. And I want to get some, uh, some more relevant thing. Now, you might think to yourself, what's the deal with 2 Timothy? That's a good question. 2 Timothy is actually one of my favorite books. It's, it's a really, really interesting book. 2 Timothy is the last book written by the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy was a much more optimistic book. Probably the book of Titus got uh, authored in between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy, he is in prison and He knows that it is his last. In fact, we read here, and at the end, towards the end of Second Timothy, in uh, chapter four, for I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. More could be said. He writes, "I could, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith." Isn't that amazing? So he knew that his time of departure was right there. And he says, I've fought the good fight. Prayerfully, we are still in the midst of our fight, right? And But just imagine being able to say that. That I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. He had yet to just simply coast across the finish line. His life was in the hands of his Lord. And he looked forward to a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who crave is appearing. That's a wonderful thing to look forward to. So Paul was facing his own death, and you might think to yourself, "Why would you turn to Second Timothy for thought when you're thinking of the world around us gone crazy?" Well, because Paul foresaw it. He foresaw it. He wrote about twenty twenty three. He said. But understand this, 2 Timothy 3, 1. Understand this, in the last days, terrible times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous without self-control, brutal, without love of good, traitorous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Turn away from such as these. Turn away from such as these. Paul writes, I I read that and I thought, he's describing Babylon around us. He's describing today. Paul, so many years ago, given by our God a vision of the future. And so it's in that sense that I want to turn to this book and look at what he has to say for us. What does Paul have to say for us? And this is what I want to read next. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 3, after some exhortations to Timothy, he writes this. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. A soldier refrains from entangling himself in civilian affairs in order to please the one who enlisted him. Likewise, a competitor does not receive the crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all things. Okay, so I started studying these verses, and I stopped literally at the first word, which is, join me in suffering. That's the first word. It's actually not a word. Paul invented it. Paul was a smart dude, and he had a strange tendency every so often to just invent words by smashing words together. And so it's time for our lesson, our daily lesson in Greek He writes, join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's the word. That means join me in suffering. Ish. Can you pronounce that? Soon kakopatheson. Sort of. There's some English. You can pretend that that helps. I do. It works for me. Soon kakopatheson. He smashed these words together. Soon means together or with... Kakos is speaking of bad things. Things, something that maybe ought not to be. It's wicked, base, destructive. Soon kakopitheso. Patheo means to suffer. It's related to a word that means to be trampled upon. So smash this all together. And this means together with me, all this bad stuff that ought not to be, suffer it with me. <laughs> be trampled with me. Together with me. You know, boy, is that an encouragement or what? We're going to see how this can be an encouragement, but boy, does Paul start off in a funny way. Join me in suffering. And then he gives three examples. Join me in suffering. And here's these three examples. And so I want to look at these three examples. These three examples are worth looking at. And we've got plenty of time to do so. This is going to be exciting. So the first example is a soldier. A soldier. Join me in suffering like a soldier. He writes in verse 4, A soldier refrains from entangling himself in civilian affairs in order to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier refrains from entangling himself in civilian affairs. So the first thing that you'll notice, if you are looking at these three, these three examples, we've got the soldier, we've got the athlete, and we've got the farmer. So one of the observations that just struck me is that these are not, you know, part-time jobs. If you think about a soldier, particularly the one I think Paul had in mind, probably dressed something like that. We're talking about a lifestyle. This is, this is not a, well, you know, I do it on, you know, every third Thursday. Yeah. This is, this is a lifestyle. The athlete, similarly, particularly the athlete, I think, the type of athlete that Paul had in mind. We're talking about a lifestyle. And the farmer, again, a lifestyle. Well, I do farming, you know, every uh, month, you know, once a month, you know, every other week or whatever. (laughs) No, you don't, right? This is a lifestyle here. So the soldier, of course, we could look at the soldier's armor and immediately our minds might turn to Ephesians. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's something good you can think about, right? That we know that as we are living in Babylon, we haven't been dragged to Babylon. It's been dragged to us. It's surrounding us. It's penetrated our culture that we know we're not fighting against the people who are servants of this culture. We're fighting against the dark forces behind them, right? And we have to have faith in our God and put on his armor, right? And so stand firm with the belt of truth, right? Buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness arrayed. Right? And your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And then take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows. So, truth, we've got to cling to truth in this day and age. What should we focus on as people transported to Babylon without moving? Right? We must focus on the truth. We must focus on righteousness on the gospel and the peace that it brings to our hearts and to those with whom we share it. The shield of faith, knowing that we can, by faith, trust God. Can you trust God to deal with our culture as they come for our kids? Can we trust God? Yes, we can. The helmet of salvation. Without salvation, your head is exposed to a mortal wound. Without salvation, you're exposed. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so, the word of God. We must cling to this as we're in Babylon. So, I'm not urging you to cling to the Republican Party. Nope. Or the Democrat Party. Nope. What about focus on the family? You can cling to them, right? Nope. Cling to this. The armor of God. So that was the first thing, of course, that jumps into my mind. You look at a soldier you're like, wow, check out that cool armor. Well, I have good news because as of last night, I was just innocently looking for clip art. And it turns out you can buy the armor of God at Walmart.com. I kid you not. Walmart.com. I screenshotted those images from my very phone last night. You can buy... The armor of God. Or at least something that looks cool. At Walmart.com. Sorry, I had to share that. So going back to the soldier. Here's this soldier guy. Okay, let's not think about the armor so much now as think about him for a minute. A soldier refrains from entangling himself in civilian affairs. Think about the lifestyle of a soldier. Sorry, I want to walk, but I'm, I'm trying to stay here so that Zoom can, you know, Thor and, uh, you know, other people can see me. But a soldier lives a life apart, right? He refrains from entangling himself in civilian affairs. He does not get involved in riots. He does not get involved, unless, except maybe to stop him, right? He does not get involved in campaigning for the favorite cool dude who's truly going to make America something, right? He does not get involved in politics. Think about that. Think about the lifestyle of a soldier. What does it involve? It involves living a life apart. It involves training. It involves training in things that most people just don't think about, like tactics, strategy. How often do you think about strategy? Well, I don't think about it very often except to complete my tasks for work. What's my strategy? Work hard and get it done, right? (laughs) Strategy, tactics. A soldier studies things that others don't, right? Think about it. He keeps out of petty arguments, politics. He learns to become wise and to discern the situation, right? Is this a situation that he really needs to get involved with, or will this just resolve itself, perhaps, right? Is this something where he needs to separate some people, you know, crack a whip over people or whatever, right? A soldier learns discernment. He's knowledgeable about techniques. And so what does this possibly have to do with us? What in the world does this have to do with a Christian today? I think a lot. Think about it. We, as Christians, we want we want so much to be, you know, in, this world is so captivating, but we've got to, like the soldier, We've got to set apart ourselves from the world. We've got to sanctify ourselves from the world. We've got to live a life apart as Christians. And we do. In our household, we don't watch the nightly news. We carefully uh we we use discernment uh and, and choose our sources of information of what we saturate ourselves with. You know, you've got to, as a Christian, separate yourself. We learn things that normal people don't learn, don't we? And they're important. Things like the doctrines of God. We learn these things and we study them and we cling to them. And we must live a lifestyle. Christianity is a lifestyle, right? And so I think that the example of the soldier. Is a wonderful example. He refrains from entangling himself in civilian affairs. We must refrain from entangling ourself in the things of this world. America is going to be made something again, maybe. But we must cling to what's true, cling to each other, come out to meetings, you know, fellowship, teaching, breaking of bread, prayer, This is the things that we must be engaged in as Christians. It says, in order to please the one who enlisted him. It's my understanding that at that time, that really meant the soldier's commanding officer. That at that time, the way it worked was that your commanding officer is the one who enlisted you. So you serve to please your commanding officer. Think about that from a Christian perspective. We serve to please our commanding officer. Is he going to say, well done? Is he going to say that? We want him to. So as Christians, we must do that. Isn't this a neat metaphor? Do you see how I got into this? Okay, next one, athlete. We read uh, 2 Timothy 2:5, 2, 5. Likewise, a competitor does not receive the crown unless he competes according to the rules. Paul later on says, I have run the race. He's done. The race is done. Now, I wanted to show you all some ancient artwork because uh, they had a lot of running type of, uh, you know, the Olympic Games and things like that were, in, in the ancient world, were very popular, and uh, there was lots of athleticism and lots of it centered around running. But it turns out if you Google for ancient artwork about the ancient runners, you get what you searched for. They, uh, You see how it says here... Um, well, it doesn't. But it actually says in another verse in Hebrews, let us throw off every encumbrance. Well, the ancient uh, runners, they would throw off every encumbrance. And the artwork depicted exactly that. I can't show that to you, so I found this discus thrower. And he happened to have the right angle, so it's just the discus thrower. I don't know what to say. I'm sorry about that. But they ran unencumbered. <laughs> Throw off every encumbrance. So let me go back to Second Timothy. Like a competitor does not receive the crown unless he competes according to the rules. So a competitor, an athlete, is focused on doing what he needs to do within the boundaries given to him to win, right? To win, to receive the crown. And the crown is the crown that an athlete, the only the winner, gets the crown, Right? And so in Hebrews, of course, I jumped my mind to Hebrews. Let us throw off every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance. The race set out for us. And I thought that was a, isn't that's a great summary. Let us do this. So how could this apply to a Christian today? Well, we've got to. Throw off every encumbrance. What encumbers our Christian lives? Think about an athlete. They got to, you know, they're always training, right? It's a lifestyle. Training, preparation, pacing yourself, you know, looking for the goal, knowing that you're going to hit that goal, and if you take off at a sprint and die, you're not going to hit that goal. In fact, the very first marathon runner died. And I guess all the guys ever since then said, I bet you I could do that without dying. And so the Marathon was born. And so a Christian, we must throw off encumbrances in our lives, right? Our our lives, we've got to, you know, throw off, you know, campaigning for whatever, right? Throw off, you know, the things that encumber our lives. We've got to stay focused and focus on things like, again, like these, our, our meetings together, our children, you know, focus on your children, focus on Passing the truth of the gospel to your children—it's not going to happen just by mistake. You know, know, I figured that you know because I was saved, my kids will just be saved. Well, they're their own individuals; they have to make up their own mind. The faith—they have to make their own decision for faith. And so, we've got to do what we can to train them and give them appropriate information so they can actually make an informed decision one day about their faith. So. Focused on the crown. So the athlete always focused on the end, so the Christian life as well. Alright, let's, we are running close to out of time already. Farmer! The hardworking farmer should be the first to partake of the crops. Hardworking farmer. Well isn't that just starting it out here? Well I didn't want to work hard. I know you didn't. I'm kind of lazy too. You don't have to work hard every second of your life. It's not a sprint. It's an endurance race. And so it is with the farmer also. The farmer is hardworking, but the farmer is just like all of these guys focused on the long term. The farmer is focused on what's going to happen at the end of the season. Crop or no crop. Right? <laughs> so the farmer is a long term planner. In James, we have uh, a few verses I wanted to go through. Be patient then brothers. Be patient then. This is the way a farmer must look and view the world. With patience until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the soil. How patient he is for the fall and spring rains. You too, be patient and strengthen your hearts because The Lord's coming is near. James makes it so clear that just like the farmer is focused on the harvest, so too must a Christian be focused on the end goal of the Christian life, which is the Lord's coming, being with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And so think about this in our lives as a Christian. We've got to be careful, just like a farmer has to look out and plan that this season I'm going to need to change some drainage. I'm just going to need to plow the field a little bit differently. You know, this season, you know, it's been it's been uh, dry. We, you know, the farmer has to know the the seasons and the times. And so, too, we Christians have to know the seasons and the times. You know, maybe when is the time to i don't know take my kids out of public school and start homeschooling them that's a tough decision so we've got to be wise right we've got to be we've got to be judging the situation from the long term perspective of the ultimate harvest of souls with god together with god of the lord's return being together with him right and so all of these Soldier, athlete, farmer, these guys are lifestyle choices, right? So what's the thing tying them all together? Lifestyle choices, right? Well, the soldier, his goal is to please the one who enlisted him, right? His commanding officer. Athlete, their goal is to receive the crown. And the farmer, he wants to partake of the crops. Maybe even sell some of them for profit, right? And so, what about us? Does this have anything to do with us? Well, I think it does. We want to please our Lord, just like a soldier. Like an athlete, we're looking forward to receiving the crown. Just like, in, you know, we've got Paul who says, I'm looking forward to receiving the crown that's laid up for me. And all who love his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Are you looking forward to his appearing? I am there's a crown. There's a crown for that. Receive the crown. And to partake of the crops. So what do all these things have in common? And I think that the, the word you'd, I'd want to say is goal or focus. All of them have goal. All of them have a focus. And that's The thing with our Christian life. Does our Christian life have any goal or any focus? Or do we just meander around like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm going to sit over there by that. Oh, there's a bunch of cool stuff over there. I'll sit over there, you know. What am I doing in my Christian life, right? Meandering around. What's our goal? What's our focus? Well, going back to Hebrews, I want to encourage each of us. Just like we should run unencumbered, the author of Hebrews says, let us... Fix our eyes on Jesus. And I think that that's, as Christians, guys, Babylon has surrounded us. What do we do? Oh, no, the sky is falling. Nope. Guess what, guys? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remain steadfast in clinging to the apostles' doctrine, teaching, fellowship, prayer, worship, breaking of bread, right? Cling to these things. And this is all we need to survive in Babylon. This is exactly what Daniel and his three friends needed when they survived in actual Babylon. And this is what we need today. The author and perfector of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Guess what? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross because he was looking at the big picture. While he was on the cross, he suffered. In fact, in Gethsemane, shortly before the cross, he was sweating drops of blood. He said, Father, if there's any other way, then let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. Was there another way? There was no other way, was there? But he asked. It's like, kind of like, you know, you just have to say it. Right? In my house, sometimes I say, just saying. It's not, you know, I'm just trying to make out a point. I wonder if he was making a point. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. And so he went to the cross and he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken of God the Father for us. Because of our sins. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke For me. And so, I would encourage you to consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart today in Babylon. Do not grow weary and lose heart. We need this. And so I wanted to share with you the encouragement. Man, I was, I've just been blasting through these verses and like, I want so much. I could, you know, I could also go back and talk about, you know, a lot of stuff. A lot of good stuff. But listen, we've got to remain focused on the essentials of the Christian faith. And don't worry about all this stuff as Babylon collapses around us. God's in control of that. God's got his timing on that. Just like Daniel trusted, trusted God to be in charge and just followed him honestly, we've got to do the same. If they outlaw praying, go to your prayer room right in front of the window and start praying. If they drag you down and say, well... We're going to throw you in the lion's den because of that. So, saying, you know, the Lord will send his angel if he wants. He certainly has plenty of them to send. No need to worry. Let's close. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the sacrifice you made for us. God, our Father, we thank you for your deep love for us, your loving kindness. We're thankful that you are mindful of us, that we are but dust that you are mindful of that. Lord, you are a compassionate God. We thank you for the provision that you made for us to be saved. Thank you again, Lord. I pray that uh, you would strengthen each of our hearts as we try to survive in our modern culture as it collapses around us. Help us to focus on what's important, the truths of the Christian faith and the truths of our practice of meeting together for... Uh, teaching, prayer, worship, and fellowship. And so we, uh, just think of you this time and just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.